Alright, BizzleCast listeners, welcome to Bizzle's Daily Rebels, where I drop a commentary for an episode of Star Wars Rebels each day. If you want to hear more about how all of this works and where it came from, you should go to the first episode. Otherwise, I'm going to have you queue up the episode and count us into it. I always advise people to put subtitles on, maybe some ambient sound so you can hear a little bit of the music and uh, sound effects. I'm going to count us down three to one, and when I say go, you should hit play, and it will align perfectly with the episode. So thank you so much for listening. Get your media files, DVDs, Blu-rays queued up to the beginning, and I'm about to count us down. All right, here we go. Three, two, one, go. All right, folks, welcome to Star Wars Rebels Season 1 Empire Day. Uh, first part of a two-part story. There's a lot going on. It's mostly about Ezra's search for his parents. On repeat viewings, this is one of the more annoying sides of Ezra, and it's not the actor, the voice actor's fault, and it's not the character's fault. But because ultimately we just find out that his parents are dead, uh, but only recently, it doesn't really hit as hard as it should. And in fact, Taylor Gray's emotional performance in season two, when we find out for sure that they died, but that they had heard his transmission at the end of this season, which we'll get to. Here's Ezra starting to learn how to talk to animals. Kanan unleashes a monster in that Ezra is able to far surpass um, Kanan's abilities in this particular field down the road. There's a bit of back and forth. But anyways, it almost would have been better for us to just accept that they were dead. It made sense. It didn't need to be explained. I think what they were trying to do, and I, I totally get it, is make it a character study of Ezra that's just based around his obsession. It also sets up that he has visions that are either self-fulfilling or, you know, misleading. In this one, or, um... Is it next one? Whenever... Now, at some point, I think this season... The, uh, the the Brent Spiner character, who's pretending to be a, you know, rebellious ex-senator, is really working for the Empire. Ezra has a vision about him, that they're going to meet him and he's going to help, and it turns out to be quite the opposite. Um, Maul also manipulates him with the visions going forward, so this is setting up a lot of stuff. I was hoping that this two-parter would be the end of the Ezra parent story. So I guess my problem is really with the episode in, in Season 2, along those lines. And this also introduces a really cool Rodian uh, character, Zebo, who the Imperials are after, because Zebo was a friend of his parents, and maybe didn't do all he could. Ezra sort of irrationally blames him for his parents' death or capture, and sort of as recompense, Zebo enrolls as the double agent with the Empire, volunteers to get a computer installed in his head to download information about Ezra's parents, and ends up uh, there's Zebo and the, the data pad uh, and ends up getting all sorts of important Imperial information to share with the Rebellion. 
Ezra ultimately forgives him, and that's sort of the art, the, uh, that part of the arc of, of this two-parter. I think Luke is also born on Empire Day, uh, and, uh, I, and so I guess that would mean that, that Leia was also born on Empire Day. And I think it is called Empire Day, because the day that Natalie Portman dies while giving birth to Luke and Le- Leia, uh, Padme, in the prequels is the day that Anakin loses its fight and is almost killed by Obi-Wan and becomes Darth Vader. I don't know how that figures into it, but I do believe that Luke was also born on Empire Day. Oh, here's, yeah, here's the, uh, the senator again. Hera's always suspicious. She says she wants to believe. Uh, when he betrays her, she says, you know, she, she wanted to believe, but she's already starting to put together. It's like, why would the Empire, especially in Empire Day, allow this transmission to go through? This is a funny exchange where the pilot is being overzealous. Demand turns on the TV, even though no one wants to watch the Imperial feed, which is the only thing on the TV. And then as soon as it, the, the rebel incursion uh, appears, they tell him to turn it off. And the bartender throws it right back at him that it's Imperial regulation. You know, it's those small little bits of civil resistance that, that keep the Empire wary and, and, and keep the, you know, the fire and the spark of rebellion alive. You know, Spark of Rebellion is the name of the opening two-parter that launches the series, but it really could be the name of the, the series, Star Wars Spark of Rebellion, because this is the spark that then starts to fan the flames of Rogue One and then break out fully with the attack and destruction of the first Death Star in A New Hope. You know, they're obsessed with doing prequels of prequels of prequels with Star Wars, but with the Clone Wars and Rebels, they really nailed it. I think the problem with the prequel movie is one of the many problems, but the structural problem, other than being obsessed with politics and having wooden acting and bad casting, other than Obi-Wan, and, uh, you know, I think Natalie Portman could have been good if, if directed correctly, but whatever, maybe not. There's the force sound effect again, that he's hearing stuff, having visions. But uh, structurally, the, the prequel movies were explaining stuff that we already knew, exemplified by the poor portrayal of Anakin Skywalker by Hayden Christensen and the bad writing. I don't like Hayden Christensen. Almost nobody does. Even people who like the prequels. I mean, there are some people who will defend him. But the writing and direction for him was certainly poor as it was for Natalie Portman. It just didn't hurt Natalie as much because she's just a much better actress, obviously. She's won an Academy Award. He's never even sniffed an invitation to the Oscars. As I've commented uh, before in my Star Wars podcasts, the reason the Anakin Skywalker we see in the Clone Wars animated series is so much better is he is a noble guy who mostly tries to do the right thing and is impulsive and makes bad decisions occasionally. But the story of a, of a noble guy with a good heart who's corrupted because he's just at the wrong place at the wrong time and the wrong person who's too powerful being Palpatine takes advantage of him is much more interesting than the story we got in the prequel movies of a whiny, annoying murderer, you know, and makes Darth Vader a much less interesting character because he's just a bad guy from the beginning, even before, long before he's Vader. 
and that's why you know the the, the flirts the occasional flirtations of Ezra with the dark side. Oh, there's the Inquisitor's tie. They're gonna blow the shit out of this. Although there's more where this came from. I have the model of this for the game. It's actually quite a powerful ship in the uh, Star Wars X-wing miniatures game, and a great design and early prototype of Vader's advance, which we'll see at the end of season two, and we see in the movies. But Ezra's flirtations with the dark side are much more subtle, and because we know that he has such a good heart deep down. The only reason Kanan's not tempted by the dark side is he's a little bit simpler. He's, you know, a little bit less complicated. He's also much older, more experienced. But he also saw the horror, horrifying, you know, the, sorry, the horrifying-ness um, that was Order 66 and the murder of thousands, tens of thousands of Jedi, uh, including his own master, right in front of his own eyes. And so, he's pretty immune. We know that there's going to be some kind of ideological split, at least temporarily, between Kanan and Ezra in the final season, where I think Saw Gerrera is going to try and radicalize them, and Ezra is going to be more sympathetic, which will, by necessity, take Ezra to a darker place. But, you know, he survived Maul, and he survives Hondo, who we'll get to. He survives a lot of bad guys who try and, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, so Ezra's been pouting, but he comes in just in time to save the situation. This is great. Empire Day! I'll hail the glorious empire! God bless Freddie Prince Jr. Acting like he's on drugs or just wasted or whatever. Yeah, Ezra, Ezra couldn't allow them to not have him there. But yeah, I mean, Kanan's never really tempted. He never tries to take advantage of the Sith holocron. He never trusts Maul, rightly. He works very hard to turn the Bendu from being the one in the middle to being on the light side. It'll be interesting to see if there's any hints towards the Grey Jedi thing that were being teased with Luke and Rey uh, in Episode Eight. Or whether episode 8 will sort of retroactively inform what we see in in season 4 or just throughout Rebels. Yeah, like it's going to hit the Inquisitor. What was he thinking? I love the design of the Inquisitor other than the overly sharp teeth. I, I understand why they give bad guys sharp teeth, but they also have like hair as dad. An older Twi'lek male has sharp teeth, but she has normal teeth. Villains with perfect teeth are, are way scarier, you know? I mean, good look, good-looking villains in general, like, you know, like Tom Hiddleston as Loki, are always the scariest because they can put on this, the charm and put on the smile. Even Thrawn, although he's blue with red eyes, has, has a bizarre handsomeness to him. That combined with his his charisma and uh, ice-cold brilliance is both extremely frightening, but also attractive in a weird way. I love the design of the uh, male-female duo Inquisitor in Season... Inquisitors in Season 2. 
both of whom are quote-unquote aliens. You know, by necessity, most characters, both main side and just background characters, going all the way back to 1977, most are human, just by necessity. You, you can only have so many aliens. It's extremely expensive and hard to do. And you want to have some consistency. So we know there are a lot of Twi'leks, we know there are a lot of Mandalorians, you know, we know that there are certain species that there are a lot of. It'd be nice to get some explanation. It's the same thing in Star Trek. Humans are by far the most dominant species. And the Federation is based on Earth and is run by humans for the most part. I mean, they have chancellors who aren't human uh, occasionally, but the Federation is mostly human. The explanation there is that they spread to the stars and being humans just procreated like crazy over a few hundred years and went from being billions to maybe trillions. And that's why they're the majority. Uh, here's Zebo. So we first see this apparatus, I believe, with the assistant to Lando Calrissian, who's coming up in one of the weaker episodes uh, with Billy D. Williams. God bless him, but it's not a great episode coming up. In fact, from here till the, I said there were some weak episodes, but from here till the end of the season, it's pretty good because there's this two-parter about Empire Day and his parents and Zebo, and then there's the Jedi Temple episode after that, which is amazing, where him and, and Kanan are both tested, setting up that temple as a place that we'll return to with Ahsoka in season two. Then there's a Billy D. Williams episode, which is somewhat forgettable. And then there's the three-parter. Um, I believe the three-parter. Oh, no. So, epi- right. So, the 12th episode is, is where Travis, play, uh, played by Brent Spiner, um, turned out to be a traitor. And then the final two is where Kanan's captured, tortured. They have to rescue him, and they send out the message. And then we meet Ahsoka and the Rebel fleet, and that takes us into season two. So, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I just want to put things in perspective where they are now compared to where they are at the end of the season. I think Kanan just, you know, even though he's a rogue, he used to be an alcoholic, we learned he really lost his way after Order 66. He took on a new name and a new identity by necessity, as I'm sure other Jedi like Ahsoka did as well, go into hiding, try and be someone different. Like the recovered alcoholics who stay recovered, Kanan never really slips back into it. He has his roguish, immature moments. And this is, this is the beginning of the, the Sabine friendship, where she really cares about him. And she really puts on the hard sell, either in this episode or next, of, you know, you need to talk to Zebo, even though you're mad at him about not helping your parents. Like, you need to, you, you know, you need to find out about this. She has her parents, but she's disconnected from them. And there's a great rapport between her and him throughout the series that's very subtle and understated and only occasionally expressed through words, where she's always reminding him, you know, yes, you don't have a family, and I do, but mine hates me and is working for the Empire. And Ezra, you know, says the opposite, well, at least you have a family. But it's, it's always to support one another. When you get put in the friend zone by by a girl, I can only talk as a heterosexual guy, but when you put in the friend zone by a girl who likes you, you can fight it or you can give in. Now, you can give in just because you realize it's never going to happen and just 
be friends, but not good friends, or you can embrace it. I think men especially feel like you're either, you know, you either win or you lose. And if you're rejected, then you don't want anything to do with the person. I've learned over the years that that's stupid. And I have you know, a couple of female friends who, you know, I once had a thing for who maybe we had a quick thing or maybe they didn't have a thing for me who've become good friends. And I think that's what's happened with, uh, with, with, with Ezra and Sabine. You know, Ezra's really smart, and that's what makes him, even though occasionally annoying, that's what makes him a more interesting character overall than, than Luke or Anakin, is just that Luke and Anakin aren't particularly smart. They're very strong with the Force. They have strong, I'm not going to say good instincts, but they have strong instincts, powerful instincts. Luke ultimately makes the right decision, Anakin the wrong, but Ezra is, is really a, a deep thinker and has the instinct of goodness. You know, at the end of season three, before the Thrawn invasion, Ezra thanks, uh, is it end of season two or end of season three, where Ezra th- straight up thanks Kanan? And Kanan says, well, I don't know if there's anything more to teach you. And he's, Ezra says, no, I'm not thanking you for the Jedi training. I'm thanking you for teaching me how to be a good human being. And, and Kanan is just speechless. And, you know, Ezra is wise beyond his years, even if he doesn't realize it. Those are the spears from Endor again. Those floating transports, I can't remember if we see those in the movies. They're sort of like, you know, hover tanks. Even though Kalis continues to fail, they keep finding new ways to escape Kalis and for him. And so it's not until Theron comes in, and even before Theron realizes that Kalis is a traitor, he really starts coming down on Kalis for being incompetent. Theron's at least temporary failure after all of his work in season three. Um, I mean, he does take out a lot of rebels, but he doesn't take out the bulk of the leadership. Oh uh, man, I love seeing Kanan just scrap. That's one of the fun things about lightsabers is like, if your lightsabers are tied up, you just give them a kick to the chest. Yeah, they're like hover tanks. Imperial vehicles, you know, like whether it's a hover tank to a Star Destroyer, are either extremely bulky and are just like, you know, tanks in both the literal sense and, in, you know, the sense of just being able to take a lot of damage, or they're extremely impractical, like the giant walkers with the thin legs, but they always fire, you know, forward. You know, they're never expected to be on the, the defensive, uh, and that's the Rebels' one advantage is to get behind them, you know, because they're always so heavily armed in the front. You know, the Ghost has a rear turret, a front turret, or I should say rear guns, front guns, and turrets on top and bottom, so they can shoot in not just 360 degrees, but in uh, in three dimensions, in six directions. Now, when the Phantom's gone, I don't know if they have guns in the rear. I don't know if there's guns behind the, the Phantom. The ghost takes a lot of damage. We've never seen the ghost really torn up yet. I'm sure we will in the final season. Now, we do see the ghost in the Battle of Scarif, 
I don't know if it dies with all the other ships or not, uh, but it makes it to Scarif, so even if it gets knocked down pretty bad in Season 4, uh, it'll get up again. As they say, I get knocked down, but I get up again. <laughs> Ain't nothing gonna keep me down. <laughs> I love Rodians. A, wo- a woman that I listen to uh, on the Full of Sith podcast, which is probably my favorite. I have like two or three favorite Star Wars podcasts, but they're a bunch of old guys. They're, they're older than me. They're geezers. Brian, Mike, um, and they've had a r- rotation of women. But the current woman's name, who I'm blanking on, who's like an expert in designing Star Wars clothes from scratch, is obsessed with Rodians. And I, I totally see why. It's a great design, and you can do them totally practically in the movies. And it looks fantastic. I mean, Greedo and the, the original, you know, it's it's probably just sheer plastic, but it's really convincing. Right, so here's the, here's the TIE Advanced Prototype. It's basically just slightly more powerful, take a little more damage, a little bit more maneuverable than TIE Fighters. You know, in all the games, both video games and board games, TIE Fighters are are as maneuverable as they should be based on their size and the way they're talked about, but we never really see them pull, like, Viper moves uh, from Battlestar where they, like, turn sideways in space because, you know, there's no drag and, and no gravity. They should be able to just flip 90 or 180 degrees. Or make at least make quick turns. Oh, he's speaking Hatiz, says the subtitles. And <laughs> that's not the best time for reunion. Right, he's speaking English. He's got some clarity. His brain isn't totally gone. He's like Bodie Rook. I'm the pilot. I'm the pilot. I'm the pilot. I wonder how many times Riz Ahmed had to say I'm the pilot. In Rogue One, especially with the reshoots. Up oh, to be continued. All right, folks. Well, hopefully you'll jump. Well, I guess I'm releasing these daily. Maybe I'll release these back to back. Or maybe you'll have to wait till tomorrow for Call to Action, where we... Uh... Oh, no, that's two episodes. Sorry. Oh, no, that's a few episodes. I'm way ahead here. Let me get my Wikipedia going. Next one, the second part's called Gathering Forces. Ezra lashes out at Zebo. Oh, that's where Kanan... And... Oh, that's where... Right. That's where they go back to the planet, and Ezra controls the, uh, the scary animals, where Sabine and Hera were. By the way, I want to talk in a l- little bit about the names. I won't do it now. The biblical uh, and Greek mythological names. They decided to give the characters of Rebels. But for now, may the force be with you and the bizzle is out.